Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric, and we are very fortunate to have Mike come on back for a second episode, and I think he's here to stay. So welcome back, Mike. Thank you. I'm glad I made the cut to week two. <laughs> it wasn't a hard cut for sure. Um, we're, we're obviously thrilled to have you. Um, so this week, we're going to be covering the highlights for issue 2021-W42, which was released this past Monday. And our curator for this release is Rio Nakagorora. And as always, he had gracious help from our Our Weekly team members and our contributors. So let's dive right into it. So if you have been using R for even a little bit or perhaps a long time, what you probably have noticed is that R is a language that expects you to give it feedback. You type in a function, you type in a command, and it's going to give you back a res response on the spot. And this is because R is what's called an interpretive language. Hence, you're greeted with this R console, and you feed in the commands and function calls, and you get output back out. Now, alongside being an interpretive language, R also lets you define objects or variables that correspond to these most common types that you often see in data analysis. Things like character strings, numeric vectors, booleans of true and false, and obviously much more. And as you start encapsulating sophisticated code into functions for reuse and perhaps even to be the building blocks of an R package, you're of course free to choose and mix and match from these different object types as inputs to your functions and results that you return back to the user of your functions. Now, in contrast to R, other computing languages in the general programming space, like C, C++, etc., they actually come out of the box with things called type safety, which if you're not familiar with that term, even I wasn't familiar with it in my early days of R, that's, in essence, a fancy way of saying that inputs and even output objects are declared with a specific type and that any deviations from that assignment can result in errors when that program is compiled or even just run interactively. Now, that can take some upfront work on the developer to declare these ahead of time. But as I've been listening to more software development related podcasts, um, they've actually appreciated the safeguards because it helps with development and fixing errors down the road. Now, we're bringing this up here, but this is an R related podcast, right? So a natural question is that whether R itself should adopt these principles of type safety and type checking, but... One thing that's always been a big goal of the R core team is to maintain backward compatibility so that two years, three years, maybe five years down the road, that same code you wrote that's using the base R functionality will work as intended. Well, there is, there is a happy medium here because a new initiative launched by a very talented group of R developers led by Kiro Moeller who's been no stranger to contributions in the tidyverse amongst other important efforts, he and his group are aiming to provide R with this capability of type checking and type safety via a new RPP package that's part of a broader initiative called QLang, 
which is what we're focusing on in our first highlight today. So this is still very early days, but the goals of RPP are to specifically provide R with type safety through the mechanisms of static type checking, but while not shortchanging or compromising the performance in the language. And as I can tell from this early stage, I'll be interested in your thoughts on this, Mike, but this is definitely no small effort. But the good news is they have a few of the building blocks already in development, such as other members of the team, like Antoine Fabry's typed package and Joe Thorley's CHK or check package that are helping with some various lower level operations in this overall paradigm. Now, as I read this to myself, as I get a gist of what's happening here, I sense this is a direct play, a direct result of even strengthening R's position to being a robust production worthy language for software development where the knock on R historically has been, it's great for prototyping data analysis, but you got to go to something else for production. I don't think those are the days anymore. I think R now has equal footing in production and that this could be a chance to be this effort, this RPP effort and QLang effort has a chance to be as transformative to developers as some previous efforts that have transformed the R ecosystem like RCPP, for example. But Mike, what are your thoughts on what this initiative can mean in the big picture and what it reminds you of? This post you know, really blew me away and it took me probably a couple of read-throughs to figure out exactly what they were doing, you know, what they're trying to accomplish there. You know, I think it reminds me a lot of, as a SQL SQL developer, the way that you have to declare variables in SQL. You have to set their type before you can use them at all. And, you know, as I try to draw analogs for myself to understand exactly what the group is doing here, uh, I'm very glad that I'm not one of these contributors on this project because I am certainly uh, not versed enough <laughs> to, to speak on this subject or to contribute to this subject, but it's phenomenal to watch along and, and see what they're doing here. It blows my mind that they would be able to implement this sort of type checking without causing any uh, detraction to performance to be able to do that with the same amount of performance. And exactly like you said, it's again, proving that R is a production, you know, quality language for, for building production software and for, for actually deploying data science solutions. I think every single day we wake up to a new story that, that kind of debunks the myth that, that R, you know, can't be used in production. It can only be used locally for analysis. So I, Every time I see an article like that, it fires me up. It, it just gets me more on the bandwagon of, of being proud to be an R user. I think one of the beginner-friendly things probably about R is that you know we typically don't have to do this. We can take it for granted that R determines the object type, it's, type itself right, as an object-oriented programming language. But this can definitely get a little tricky when you start getting deeper into R development and trying to understand the difference between S3 and S4 classes, methods, all sorts of types of things like that. And this is something that I've definitely attempted to get better with as I've dived deeper into developing R packages, right? Because I want to make my error messages as intuitive to the user as possible. Yes. Obviously, if the user inputs a variable that is the wrong type, 
hopefully somewhere along the way, you know, Basar might kick in and spit out an error message. But I would like to give them something a little bit more intuitive right up front before it even hits any of my actual logic to tell them, hey, you know, this is the this is the wrong input type here. So I typically read a lot of source code from the Tidyverse and, and Tidy Models team when I write my packages because they do an awesome job of writing error messages that provide feedback to the user when the wrong type of input was supplied. Right. And they, I think they do a better job of that than, than base R. So a lot of this is, is definitely over my head, admittedly, but I'm very excited to see where this goes. The team that's working on this are absolute stars in the R ecosystem and some of the work that they've developed, you know, it's work that I use every single day. Um, so really excited to follow this along and glad that it made this week's episode. Yeah. And the fact that in this admittedly early stage, they're, they're putting this out there now so that we can provide feedback and real time testing of these ideas is only going to strengthen the the uh, capabilities of this of this uh, package um, and and overall um, suite of tools. So I, I came into R even after things like RCPP have been established. So it's rare that I get to see some of these initiatives happen from the start. And so I'll be keeping an eye on this. And like you, Mike, um, there. A lot of this is over my head as well, because I'm a consumer mostly of a lot of these more lower level uh, features. But I think um, as I start to get better at developing production code and thinking about these issues that may not necessarily happen when you have an interactive data analysis, it's great to see that there will be an R compliant way to enforce some more strict checks, some more robust principles to just strengthen my abilities, but I can opt into it when I'm ready. I'm not forced to do it. And they even have ways in this current package to turn on and off the checking on the spot so that if you're in development, you can have it on. But in release of production, you've already solved all the issues. You make it run just like you would have outside of it. So I think that's really important here. Absolutely. And I think maybe you made a good point before at the fact that they are putting this out in the open kind of at the beginning of this project allows us to, you know, hopefully test this and help them out along the way. And I think that's a great way, an underrated way to contribute to open source is to potentially try to install dev versions of packages, right? That's an easy way. You don't actually have to make any sort of contributions or changes to the source code. You can just install dev versions of packages and try them out and test them um, first for the person who you know put their blood, sweat, and tears into trying to either develop a new package or to you know get to the next version 2.0 of their package, but they want to make sure that it's stable and robust before it goes out to the world. You bet. Yep. So I, I think you and I are both very interested in this, along with I'm sure many others in the community as this um, begins to take off. So we'll keep watching this space, as they say. So staying with the development theme, um, our second highlight is also bringing an excellent use case of having choice in open source and the ways we develop our code. So a lot of times we, of course, have the choice of languages to use, of packages to use, but we also get a choice of what the toolbox has that we use to develop code, packages, much more. In my projects that I've been working on lately at the day job, I'm often harnessing multiple languages. 
As much as I wish R could do all the things, as they say, I sometimes had to venture out into other frameworks and connect with integrations to other systems. And so having that ability is a huge plus for me, but also alongside that is a choice of which actual integrated development environment I use to create the code, whether it's in R or other languages. So for myself personally, in the last year, I've been experimenting with Visual Studio Code in some of my projects, especially within the space of creating custom development containers via Docker, as well as some other basic uh, development in Python as needed. Now, VS Code, um, for those that aren't familiar, VS Code is the IDE that's produced by Microsoft which has its roots in another project called Atom that GitHub um, had launched. Um, it does not come in with built-in R support, unfortunately, but VS Code has a very robust extension system and the R extension in particular, led by Yuki Yuda and Kun Ren, has come a very long way since its first release. And now we're starting to see others share their practical experience with developing R code in Visual Studio Code, such as data scientists from ThinkR, Sebastian Rochette, who wrote a very practical and objective post on his blog about his experience with VS Code from the perspective of a longtime RStudio user. And what I really like about Sebastian's post is that he starts with trying to de demystify some certain stumbling blocks that can occur, such as what do you actually do when you want to start using VS Code with R? How do you start? What do you need to download? And so Sebastian gives a very straightforward guide on setting up your environment with the key extensions needed and answering the most common issues that you might experience, such as auto-completion of code, integration with Git, some recommended key bindings, and that only scratches the surface. And as someone who's been developing with both RStudio and VS Code within the last year, I definitely resonate with many of Sebastian's remarks at the end of the post regarding if you would actually switch to VS Code full time. Now, for me, this is not an either or situation because they both have their strengths and weaknesses and not every project are gonna is going to have the same requirements that benefit from one of these two IDEs every single time. And one thing that I've been able to do through a lot of um, experimentation, but now I think I have a nice workflow, is that now I have a development environment for my R programming, at least for my open source work, that lets me pick whichever one works best for the project. And thanks to being able to leverage Docker and a containerized development workflow, I can now toggle back and forth between RStudio and VS Code to edit the same set of files and even leverage the same set of packages via RM so that I can experiment. I don't have to feel like I'm locked in one way or another. And it just is a lot of fun to try new things. So I really enjoy Sebastian's take on this. And we're starting to see this pick up a little more uh, steam, if you will, in the R community. But uh, Mike, I know you've looked at VS Code in the past. What, what are your thoughts on what Sebastian's explored here? Well, I thought it was a really well-articulated and practical article aimed at, you know, our users specifically, which is us, and the costs and benefits or the trade-offs for using VS Code and what's available. 
I've delved into VS Code a little bit in the past, been probably a little overwhelmed because every time I try to use it, I don't exactly have a use case. I'm just sort of opening it, trying to explore around a little bit, maybe watch a YouTube video or something like that. It's really dark in there. It's it's, it's night mode, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out exactly how it works. But one right. of my personal initiatives um, this year that I set set for myself, so I gotta I gotta get that done pretty soon, is to learn how to develop within a container. Um, and I think that's working within VS Code really lends itself nicely to that because you can do all those things, you know, right within VS Code. I've deployed uh, Docker containers before on, you know, other systems, but never actually developed within a container myself. Um, so I think that will end up saving me a lot of time to make sure that it works before deployment once I can figure out how to do that. You know, Sebastian, brilliant. I did notice that the article does conclude that, you know, for most use cases, he thinks that he's probably going to stay within our studio with the exception of doing, you know, production grade R work and especially for collaborative development. And I know one thing that he mentioned in particular that I've heard a lot of other people say is incredibly useful when working in VS Code is this live sharing option. So I think it's, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but I think it's almost, you know, a Zoom-like way to just really quickly show your code to somebody else and maybe also collaborate on the code at the same time. You're exactly right. It, it is very slick on how they pull this off, but you can have one person initiate the share and invite another VS Code user who doesn't necessarily even have to have the same extensions installed. They can just magically connect to the same coding session and you can see their edits in real time alongside yours, giving you like a Google Docs collaborative experience, but actually running the same execution environment from the original person's uh, code environment. So it's really slick and I'm really looking forward to exploring that for our projects down the road. Yeah, me too. I, I think I can kind of see, you know, we do a lot of at my company, do kind of two different suites of projects. One is our package development, and then the other one is our shiny development. And I guess Gollum's kind of both at the same time. But I think probably for the our package development, our studio still has so many built-in tools that enable it to really check your packages and develop your packages quickly sort of on that side. But in terms of building apps that are going to get deployed somewhere you know that's that's not crayon um that that you know folks don't care necessarily what's under the hood about them whether it's r whether it's python whatever i, I think that vs code is probably a great step for that because you, you definitely want to lock down your dependencies and something like docker and i think probably for those particular projects that that's an area that will potentially start to look into vs code for absolutely yep so it's like i said it's great to have choice and we're seeing this uh, the, the set of resources and more importantly, the the write ups, the transparency of experiences with this, I think are really going to help, frankly, spear both efforts and new features coming to both IDEs. So I think it's great to great to see this in action. And it's really helped my workflow in key situations. But much like what Sebastian says, there are certainly most of my R Typical R work is going to be best suited for our studio, but a lot of newer efforts I have, like he alluded to the productionized development, the containerized development, that's just been super slick in VS Code. So credit to 
credit to the advancement of these new capabilities that we all get to use for free, like always. So never, absolutely. Number one for open source. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, in the spirit of open source, right, this is the R extension for VS Code is out there on GitHub. If you yeah. want to check it out and uh, you can contribute as well. We got a link to that in the show notes. Yes. I've actually filed a couple issues of them as I was pushing the envelope on certain things. And I don't have all the answers yet, but they're definitely looking into some key operations. So, yep, we'll be watching that space as well. And um, we're going to definitely switch gears to our last highlight, which uses something that comes up a lot in the R Weekly Highlights is visualizations with ggplot2. So, Mike, what do we have for this? Sure, we'll switch it up and I will kick off this topic. And I really like the mix of content this week. It was a little bit all over the place. It started with an R package um, that's in development. Then we moved to a whole software development platform with VS Code. And now we're on to DataViz in ggplot in a particular use case um, that the author Neil was sharing. So this is something you know that I think paid data viz platforms like tableau and power bi do really well it's these ribbon charts which are essentially sort of two lines plotted on the same chart but the area between the lines is shaded and there was a tweet that was put out by hugh graham that said you know what what is the right way to create this type of ribbon chart um, which is sort of like a time series you know, with two groups and then fill the area between them based upon which group is higher or lower. And Neil put together a whole blog post answering this question, which is in the show notes on how to do that. And it turns out that it's not super straightforward on exactly how to do this in ggplot. There's a couple little tricks in order to accomplish it that you have to employ in order to get the shading correct between the two lines. So he does a great job of articulating how to do that. And I really enjoyed his post and his write-up. You know, it was interspersed with the code and the ggplot on exactly how he was doing it, sort of the issues that he ran into along the way, you know, the, the backstory about why these issues exist, some GitHub issues of conversations um, that the ggplot developers had had about this known, you know, whether you want to call it a bug or a feature. And, you know, he sort of wraps it up with this really nice uh, custom function that he creates that you can copy and paste right into your R console and run. And it, it does all the heavy lifting for you in terms of creating these nice ribbon charts. Yeah, that's been um, it's been a, it was an interesting read. And I admit a lot of times for my ggplot2 efforts, I don't have to strive as much outside the kind of typical norms of the features that geomes offer you. But I definitely have had some cases where I had to go outside the box a little bit with like the data I'm feeding into it or even getting really low level with the grid layout system. But there is almost always a way to solve things in ggplot too. Some are more maintainable than others. But I think uh, Neil's approach here is something that could be extended to even more general cases um, beyond this blog post. And again, it's a great, the, the process of how he arrived to a solution is frankly worth the, the highlight in and of itself, because it, it can be quite an adventure to figure out the right data layout, the right way to call certain aesthetic features. And so this is a great, a great showcase. If you're, if you're just kind of curious, what 
how do certain solutions get get found in visualization? This is a very iterative way, an iterative post to show how that's done. Yeah, absolutely. And as you read it, you realize that it's it's sort of a surprisingly tricky problem. And I'm going to attempt to you know talk about data visualiz- a particular data visualization on a podcast, but. Really, the, the, the difficult part is that the intersection of two lines on a chart doesn't always take place at a coordinate that's explicitly represented in the data. So that's where the shading becomes difficult. You know, how far do we shade underneath these particular two lines? You know, when we go through the process of mapping values from our data frame to values in, in the ggplot chart itself, those intersections, you know, which bound which fill color gets shown don't necessarily exist in the data. And a use case for these ribbon charts that, that we use all the time, you know, I'm somebody who builds a lot of dashboards, is that they're a great way to show two competing metrics over time. You know, you have maybe the, the first line represent revenue, and then the second line represent expenses, so that, you know, where the fill color is green is when revenue is greater than expenses. And then when expenses are greater than revenue, it's reversed, you're in the red, you, you, you fill that difference with the color red, and it becomes pretty intuitive to you know somebody like a non-technical manager or something like that to interpret what you're trying to say in these charts. Excellent, yeah. I know I do a lot of dashboards myself and being able to convey the key points clearly, sometimes it takes a lot of effort to get it to that, to that ready state. But again, what Neil has done here is a great way to get you on the right path of developing a very um, very influential and powerful uh, method of visualization with these ribbon charts. So yeah, I definitely enjoy reading that. And that along with all the other highlighted stories that we covered are in the episode show notes that are on this feed. But also our weekly always has more great content in store for you on top of these great highlights. And a couple of these that also caught my attention in different ways um, was a great example of reproducible research and data transparency with the Australian Shark Incidents Database, something I would not have expected to have quantified so clearly, but they put the code on GitHub, they put the data CSVs on GitHub to support a manuscript to show these incidents of of shark attacks on Australian shores. And then also, I wanna send some big congratulations to the new ROpenSci peer review editors, Emily Reeder, Adam Sparks, and Jeff Hollister. Um, I've actually interacted with Emily many times at previous RStudio conferences, and she's been a terrific thought leader in a lot of data science operational and practical considerations, especially with data and reproducible research. But I would say that the ROpenSci effort is so solid in terms of making sure code meets a standard of quality, but also very transparent with the review process. So having some new additions, I think is going to help their team even even more so. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on some other things that caught your eye, Mike? I love this R Open Sci post, uh, especially. I think that R Open Sci is potentially doing a lot of the work that the Carpentries aim to do, but focus specifically on science, which I think is an area that doesn't get the software development education as much because there's so much for them to focus on education-wise in their particular scientific domain. 
Um, so the, the work that our OpenSci is doing, I think, is very important. It's very much needed. I think it is uh, it showcases a lot of opportunities to kind of, you know, take, take down any ideas that, hey, we can only use closed source software to do scientific work. I, I think the things that folks are able to do now in the scientific world with our are blowing away a lot of the things that we were previously able to do, you know, just with closed source software, you know, being only accepted by the FDA or, or, or things like that. So really cool to see the R OpenSci effort growing. And uh, again, congrats to Emily, Adam, and Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's obviously much more to the issue. We have our usual assortment of new packages released, updated packages and events coming up in the next few months. So you can find all the links uh, directly in this episode's show notes and just by visiting rweekly.org and you'll find all of that um, for your reading pleasure. And uh, Mike, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you online? Sure, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-Brook. And that's probably the best place to reach out. Very cool. I am at the Rcast on Twitter. My Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash rpodcast. I always do a lot of fun, interesting, sometimes uh, development failures, but I always have fun learning with with an audience and they've helped me out quite a bit. And um, yeah, and if you have feedback about the show, um, don't hesitate to reach out to Mike or myself on Twitter. We're always happy to get your comments and and a special thanks to those that had some uh, great comments for us with the the revamping of, of our format and um yeah we'll be obviously coming back to you every week so that'll do it for us um for episode 62 and so we will be back with another batch of our weekly highlights next week